Well, good morning. Thanks for coming to join us for our resurrection celebration. If you're joining us online, a special thanks to you. Uh, thanks for making this a part of this uh, unique day in our, in our calendar. If you are here with us, or if, if you're online, turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3. But if you're here with us, it's page 952 in the uh, Bibles that are in the rows there uh, for you. 952, I think it'd be helpful to you to join uh, along today. We are celebrating today that death is not final. On Friday, Jesus paid for our sins on that cross. Our sins, your sin. On Sunday, he rose again to live forever, proving that life is forever. What difference does that make for us today? We just sang it, but basically it's this, because Jesus is alive, we can live forever. Usually as we think of this truth as believers in Jesus Christ, we feel that it answers three questions. It answers the what question. We will be alive. So after we die, we will be alive. It answers the when question. We'll be alive after we die. And it answers the where question in heaven. So we will be alive after we die in heaven. That's it, right? There's another question. Our study today in Philippians 3 is seeking to answer this question, a most important question. It's the who question. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are one of those who can say, we will be alive after we die in heaven with Jesus. And that's a vital question. It's a vital question because this has to do not only with after we die, but we are alive with Christ and in a relationship with Christ now. In fact, the greatest privilege of being a believer in Jesus Christ is that we have a forever relationship with our risen Savior. A key verse in chapter 3, which we will get to eventually, but I want you to read it ahead of time, chapter 3, verse 10, because it connects the resurrection of Jesus to our relationship with Jesus that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Just kind of hang on to those words. You may have it like this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Because indeed the greatest privilege of a believer in Christ is a forever relationship and that relationship starts not when we die and go to heaven. That relationship begins when you first place your faith in Jesus who died for your sins and rose again. So the question is, all these benefits of this gift package of salvation, including the relationship that we have forever, how do we enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ? Verses, we're not looking at the entire chapter, but verses 4 through 8 
will tell us, first of all, what will not do it. What does not help us establish a relationship with Christ. And then verse 9 will tell us how we can have a relationship with Christ. If you were with us last week, you know this is probably a review because Paul the Apostle tells the Philippian church the same thing that we were looking at last week. He told to the Galatian church or to the Roman church or to this church or anybody in any church or outside of any church because there's only one way to have a relationship forever with Jesus Christ. Here's what will not do it. And in verses 4 through 8, Paul, who was a Jew, tells about the religious credentials he had, which turned out to be worthless to bring him into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Actually, the middle of verse 4, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says, circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law or keeping the law, a a Pharisee, that was top shelf. As for zeal, persecuting the church, that's what they did. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So he goes through his list to say, I had all the religious qualifications that any good Jew could ever possibly have had. I was the cream of the crop of the young rabbis. I... But what did he discover? It was worthless. Verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to, and here was his goal, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So having done everything that his religion asked or required or established as a goal, he said, I found out it was worthless to bring me into relationship with Jesus Christ, the creator and the savior. It did nothing. In fact, he uses two illustrations. First, you heard in verses 7 and 8 the financial illustration. He said, everything that I thought was a profit, everything that I put in the asset column, actually turned out to be a liability in terms of developing a relationship with Jesus Christ because thinking that my religious credentials are doing good things or what my religion asked, thinking that that helped qualify me to be right with God actually blinded me to what was actually a free gift and only a free gift this relationship with Jesus Christ. So he says, not only was it a liability, but he, said he, used, he used the term rubbish. In, in the Greek language, it was like the smelliest word he could have used. So if you can think of the worst possible thing you could find in a trash bin or landfill, that was the language Paul was using. It's a repulsive expression. He says, that's what all my religion was good for. Because it did not give me a relationship with Christ. And that, verse 8, is the goal. It's all a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not until the end of this chapter does he even mention heaven. Going to heaven is part of the gift package of salvation without doubt. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. But to Paul, it was the part of the gift package he does not even mention at this point. The the where was not his focus. 
but the who he would be with. Unbelievers have no idea of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, this, maybe, maybe you're at a place today where you're going, yeah, what's, what's a personal relationship? I hear people talking about a personal relationship with Christ. Too many believers really have not taken advantage or really understand what a relationship with Christ can be. And Paul wants to communicate that. Is your relationship with Christ one that daily and throughout any day you can, you can talk with him about the deepest things on your heart, mind, and emotions? Is your relationship with Christ one that you sense his presence with you anytime you want to let that reality come to surface? You go, oh, I'm not alone both for assurance or accountability. He's with me. He said, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Is a relationship with Christ one where when you experience something good, something tiny, something huge, your first impulse is thank you. Because he wants us to have that kind of relationship and so if your sense of, of salvation is simply to put your faith in Christ and put a ticket to heaven in your pocket, it's a tragic loss for you. True, if you put your faith in Christ, you have that. But he wants to give us so much more. In fact, at the end of verse 8, he uses this term, that I may gain Christ. So all my religious efforts were worthless because my goal is to gain this relationship with Christ. You remember your first crush? I just took you back, right? It didn't really matter where you went with him or her. It didn't matter how much money you had to spend. All that matters is that you were with him, with her. Now, Jesus is far more than a crush, but he has a relationship. And when you are saved from your sin, when you put your faith in Christ, you win the prize of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm borrowing that term prize from verse 14. Our ultimate goal is to be with Christ forever. So how do you gain, how do you enter this relationship with Jesus Christ personally? Don't neglect verse 9. If you are uncertain for any reason about whether you have a personal relationship with Christ and if thus you will be in heaven, please understand verse 9 today. And be found in him, that's in Christ, not having a, relationship, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, keeping rules. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, he's contrasting two kinds of righteousness. There is a righteousness of my own, and that's what every religion, with a cross on it or not, is basically teaching. 
You need to have a righteousness of your own. If your righteousness is good enough, you get to heaven. The Bible never says that. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that you need to have a righteousness that comes from God. Because your righteousness is, I'm sorry, rubbish. In terms of gaining that relationship with Christ, and your sins forgiven, and eternity in heaven, our righteousness will never qualify us. But rather, he says, I realized that there was a righteousness that comes from God on only one basis, and it's by faith in Christ. Is your faith in Christ. Last week, and I would encourage you, if you're uncertain about these things, you might want to go back and, and watch the video and read the passages in Galatians. But last week, we put up three circles. Remember the three circles? Christ, C, Christ, W, works. C plus W, Christ plus works. What are you trusting in for eternal life? What are you trusting in to bring you into relationship with God? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? It's not works. It's not religion. It's Christ alone. If you have any uncertainty about that, I would love to talk with you, someone on the staff here or someone you may know here who could help you to understand and clearly know that you've placed your faith in what Jesus did. He died to pay for your sins. And he rose again, proving that worked. And that's how you can have eternal life. Because we need a righteousness asset transferred to our account. Our account was bankrupt because of our sin, any sin. And so when we put our faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ that comes from God is placed on our account. That's how you qualify for heaven. The rest of the discussion today, from verse 10 on, applies to those who have placed their faith in Christ and are, have believed in him, put their faith in him. And, and Paul now says in verse 10, so I have this righteousness from God. I have this relationship, and that is my goal. Verse 10 either is a new sentence for you or a completion of the previous sentence. And really, uh, logically and, 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 and progressively, it's, a, it's flowing from the previous. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's greatest goal of salvation was not simply heaven, if you can even use the term simply heaven. But his goal in coming to faith in Christ is to know him. And if anybody would know the value of being in a relationship with Christ, it would be Paul. Because if you go through the story of Paul's life in Acts chapter 9, you know that he experienced Christ as vividly as you can on this earth because on, on the road to Damascus while Paul was trying to persecute Christians the risen Christ appeared to him in glory that's how he came to faith in Christ or we could go to 2 Corinthians 12 where he speaks about a vision or actually a transportation to heaven he said he wasn't sure himself what it was in which he saw the risen Christ now if anyone would know how important and how glorious it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ it would be Paul you and I might think well that's not really my experience but wouldn't you want to know what it's like to have a relationship with Christ from somebody who really understood Christ so what are you telling Christians in Port Washington it's true for us that we can know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering in fact I think it's saying we know Christ as we experience the power of his resurrection and as we experience 
the sharing of his sufferings. Do you know the power of Christ's resurrection is available to you? If you have ever felt powerless, powerless in the face of trials, powerless in the face of temptations to sin, you need to know what we've been promised. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is for everyone who believes in Christ. That power is the same as his mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. It's for us. Don't ever tell yourself you can't change. You can't change, but through Christ, you have the resurrection power to be transformed. Don't say you can't overcome sinful personality traits, whether it's a, an attitude or anger. Don't believe that you are powerless in the face of certain temptations, lust or greed or addictions. Don't tell yourself, if you're a believer in Christ, don't tell yourself you can't forgive. Because that's what the power of the resurrection does in us who believe, Ephesians 1. You have access to the power that raised the, the beaten, broken, lifeless corpse of Jesus on that Sunday morning and brought it to life. You have power that transformed a, a dead body into an immortal body that could live, is living forever in heaven and one that we discovered today will have one just like that. We have that power because Jesus said, I'll give you that power. He said, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit now lives inside of you. That's why you have the power. Paul, it transformed him. He went from a raging enemy of the gospel to a proponent, a teacher of the gospel. It tra transformed him so that he had love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, things that don't come naturally to any of us. And suddenly it began to characterize him and it can characterize you. If your dad is a billionaire, hopefully that eliminates most of us, if your dad is a billionaire, you have capacities that other people don't have. And if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have capacities that the rest of the world does not have for transformation. That's why you want to get to know Christ. That's why prayer is essential. You're talking to him. That's why the word of God's essential. He's talking to you because a relationship is always two-way communication. And that's why meeting with other people who have relationships with Jesus Christ is so important as you begin to learn what that looks like in the lives of other people as well. So if you spend time with Jesus and those who follow Jesus, now you can start to make progress in your journey to be like Jesus. But you have to realize in verse 10, there's another crucial aspect to getting to know him that kind of makes us wince. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Knowing Christ is not easy. There will be sacrifice. But you know, if you've been part of a team, 
that accomplished something really significant or special. You know what it's like to share in sufferings. Because if it's a work team or a sports team or a missions work team or something, you'll notice that in that process you get to really enjoy and draw close to one another. And it's not only because of what you accomplished. It's because of what you struggled, what you went through, what, you, what was difficult about that experience. And that is what Christ is calling us to. So the question really is, are you doing life with, Christ, with Jesus Christ? Because he invites you to do all of life with him, including sacrifice and actually then suffering with or for Christ becomes actually a source of joy. The, the, the whole story of Philippians is, is so exciting because do you know where Paul was when he wrote Philippians? Where? Prison. He was in prison in Rome when he writes what is now sometimes referred to as the epistle of joy. And he explains it in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, I'm, the reason I'm, I'm joyful, he says, it's okay that I'm in prison because I get to share the message of Jesus Christ without everybody that's guarding me. And by me being here, I'm actually an encouragement to other believers in Rome. That's where this prison was. I get to be an encouragement to others that they share their faith more boldly. So it says, it's really okay that I'm in prison for Christ. That attitude only comes from a relationship, a close relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and it also serves as a warning that if you develop your relationship with Christ, you will begin to adopt the priorities of Christ. Because suddenly those, what's important to Christ will be important to you. And so Paul, you're not discouraged in prison. You're joyful, so uh, what's the end game? Just suffer for Jesus this whole life and then die? Verse 11, no. You suffer and you share joys with Jesus and then you live. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> the end of life is no longer something to dread but something to attain because you're attaining to the resurrection it's not the worst thing that could happen it's the best thing that could happen as some of you know uh, my parents both passed away uh, two years ago this month and uh, we certainly have grieved but not for them paul would say good for them they've attained achieved arrived at the resurrection of the dead. The last couple of difficult years for mom and dad, it was very interesting to us that they chose to close each day by singing together in their faltering voices, and they were beautiful voices, a gospel song, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. You see, what sustained them in those final years, upper 80s, early 90s, was this. Their relationship with Jesus Christ was personal. So as we think back to the resurrection of Christ, we realize that when he was raised, he was raised to start a forever life. And when we put our faith in Christ, we are joined to him, and we now join him in a relationship forever. Some of you might remember some years ago, I, uh, I brought a 
100-foot garden hose on the stage. Anybody remember that? It kind of started way back there in the coil and came around here. And The illustration, something I borrowed from Francis Chan, is that the little coupling on the end of that garden hose represents our life on earth. And the rest of the garden hose, which really does not have a 100-foot end, is the rest of our life. And when we begin to get that perspective of what it means to live forever, suddenly suffering that may be a part of this little piece comes into perspective. And that's what Paul was thinking of. He gets to have a relationship with Christ forever. And he says, I get to begin that relationship. In fact, it's very important how I begin that relationship now. It gives me focus now. And I think that's what verses 12, 13, and 14 are about. And these are some somewhat familiar verses that we need to understand. It's in, the real, in context of this relationship with Jesus. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not yet consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When getting to know Jesus is our greatest goal, every day we have focus heading towards that goal. So he says, it's a process, verse 12. I haven't arrived. I mean, the process I've not obtained, I've not arrived, I've not been made perfect, and the word kind of should be translated probably complete. He said, I don't have complete knowledge of Jesus. <laughs> That's kind of funny because if anybody should, we'd think Paul would at this point. He's been a believer in Christ for now some 30 years when he writes this. He has spent about 10 total years on missionary journeys. And this is probably the 10th book of the Bible he has penned. And he says, I haven't arrived, I have not yet come to some full knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm still on this path. So we are, yeah, we're all on the path. We don't, we aren't going to, don't, don't ever think you've arrived. And, and so it's just be patient with wherever you're at right now in your relationship. And that's what he's calling us to refocus, but be patient with where you're at right now. It's possible as we're talking about this idea of knowing Jesus, that it seems pretty vague or spiritual up here and maybe not daily practical so i'd like to take a little bit of an application break and go from chapter three to chapter four and if you're looking at one of our outlines um, you'll see some of the things we want to talk about here philippians four is maybe the most popular best known chapter of philippians and we like it because it is so practical but what we may not have realized is that nothing in chapter 4 works unless you have this personal relationship of chapter 3. In my Bible, in chapter 4, I've underlined the little phrase, in the Lord, or something like it, each time it occurs. Like in verse 1, end of verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Or verses 2 and 3, which are about conflicts between believers, he says, agree with each other, in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Or that great passage about praying about all of our concerns at the end of verse 7, the peace of God 
which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Beginning in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And what he's rejoicing about is, is his financial situation and being content. And he concludes this whole section, verse 13, one of the often misused passages. He says, I can do everything through him that's in Christ or through Christ who gives me strength. What is the everything? I can have spiritual stability. I can get along with believers. I can rejoice. I can bring my worries to him and have peace. I can be content with my finances. But only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we may long for the blessings of chapter 4. But it's only as we get to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and focus on this relationship we have talking to him and letting him speak to us through his word that we begin to have the spiritual stability that we long for so we don't go to pieces about everything that happens in our life, verse 1, and that we begin to work through conflicts with other believers because in the Lord we realize what we have in common, not what we're disagreeing about. And through that we are able to rejoice even in the hard things, verse 4. And we can take all of our worries to him and experience his peace because our peace is going to come from our relationship with Christ and not through the circumstances. And even if something as practical as money and contentment and having not enough, he says, I can have peace in that contentment in that situation through Christ who strengthens me. Do you want that relationship? It needs to become your focus. Back to chapter 3, verse 12, when he says, about this process not arrived not that I've obtained this or already been made perfect but I this is, a, this is a fascinating phrase at the end of verse 12 I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me that which is not defined in this passage and so this uh, interesting passage about pressing on has been kind of taken and interpreted kind of like however anybody wants to take it but in its context, grammatically and, and, and really theologically and logically, it's saying this relationship is why Christ took hold of us. And so I want to focus on the relationship and give it the significance that Christ did. We often think, we usually think about salvation. By default, we think about our salvation in terms of what we have to gain. I'm going to be forever in heaven. Did you ever ask the question, what does Christ have to gain through your salvation? He's the one who created you so that there would be a person with your name made just like you. He didn't have to. He's the one that saved you, brought you the, the knowledge and understanding of the gospel so he could be in a relationship with you. Why did he do that? He did it to have a relationship with us. And so when it says that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me, he's basically saying this. Jesus saved us because he wanted a relationship with us even more than we wanted a relationship with him. So he says, I want to make sure I focus on that which caused Christ to start a relationship with me and go to the trouble of creating me, saving me, and calling me into his family. And he says, when I do that, it's going to change everything and make every sacrifice worthwhile brothers i do not consider myself to yet have taken hold of it i i, I don't fully know him I, I haven't fully 
culminated this relationship. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He says, I want to keep making my relationship with him my ultimate goal. He pictures this life as a race. He was maybe acquainted with the uh, nearby Isthmian games in Corinth or something like our, our Olympics. But everybody understands a race. There's a starting point and there's a finishing point. And so he says, this life is, is like a race. The starting point is our relationship with Christ is when we put our faith in him. And the ending point in this life, this finish line when we achieve the victory, is the end of this physical life, which is not the end of my relationship, but that's when I will fully culminate. The, the, the breadth and depth and excitement and joy and glory of knowing him fully. So he says, I'm in this race. And as I live for that culmination day, he says, I forget what's behind. Runners can't look back or to the side. You may be seeing some of those videos where uh, runners think they've won too early and they look to the side or look back and the other guy you know, passes them and, and wins. He says, I can't, I can't do that. He's referring to something in his previous life, whether he's referring to past successes he was this rising star in, in Judaism as a Pharisee. Whether he's thinking of his failures, where he says, I'm the chief of sinners, I persecuted the church of God. Either way, he says, I cannot make that my focus. I need to focus on what's before me. And so this one thing I do, I'm going to focus on the prize of my relationship with Jesus Christ and whatever that involves, the fellowship of his suffering or enjoying blessings or walking with him through this or that, doing life with Christ. He says, I'm going to focus on that. Has that been your focus? As you've run the race as a believer? Sometimes when we run the race, we might be distracted by the concession stand. Tasty, shiny, we might be focused on the fact that we tripped along the way. We thought it disqualified us, so we quit. And so what Paul is doing is he's calling us back, get back on the track, restart and reset, recalibrate your goal of knowing Christ. Verses 15 and following, he exhorts us, invites us to join with others. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we've already attained. <laughs> Join with believers who prioritize the relationship with Jesus. Because that's what mature Christians do. Notice that spiritual maturity is not defined by how good we are. It's defined by our goal. It's not what level of goodness did you achieve but are you pursuing the right goal because you could know the Bible you could teach the Bible you could conquer the obvious sins maybe and your heart can be a mess right there could be greed instead of gratitude admiration of self instead of Christ so if you think maturity is something different God will have to convince you of what maturity really is so it's it's the goal you have so verse 17 join with others in following my example brothers and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you this is why we have to have 
time together, people, as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ. We need to join with others. We need to take note of those who are, are walking with Christ. They aren't always the most obviously successful, attractive, witty, impressive people, but you know them and you know they're walking with Christ. There's something different. And so you need to, you need to hang around people like that. I'm so glad for everybody that joins us online and we have that opportunity, but you really can't join with others and follow the example of others looking at a TV screen. You can get some good information, but I hope that it calls you into relationship, not only with Christ, but with others. We need that in our pursuit of relationship with Christ. Others in the body of Christ can discern and give us discernment about priorities. He points out those who don't have this priority. Their destiny, verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are on earthly things. Doesn't that describe our world? We don't want to live like that, and yet we're drawn to all those things. But our citizenship, verse 20, this is where we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, and he will, by that power he will transform our lowly body so that it will be like his glorious body. That's his resurrected body. So, when Jesus and our relationship with Jesus is our priority, we are going to be anticipating this day. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this is the first time he's mentioned heaven in this chapter about our salvation. Recently, last what summer, fall, we were studying Bible prophecy and uh, parts of the book of Revelation, and we were assured and excited to read about the new heavens and the new earth, and, and, and it's supposed to excite us to know where we will be. But it's almost like Paul just uses that as introduction. Our citizenship is in heaven, and what do we eagerly await, he said? A savior from there. The reason why heaven is exciting is because Jesus is there, and that's where our relationship will be culminated. So can you meet Jesus wearing your body? What does it say? No, by the power that he has to control everything, he will transform our lowly body so that it will be like his glorious body. We can't get there in this. When you look in the bathroom mirror, you see your lowly body, and it gets less impressive the more years you're around mirrors. Instead, we're going to be like his glorious body. And this resurrection celebration today is a reminder to us that we are going to get a resurrection body like Christ. So what was that like? He, he, he was on earth all those days before he ascended in an earthly, physical body. It was a body that uh, could breathe, could see, could hear, could walk and talk and touch and be touched by Thomas who felt the scars in his hand and side. It was a body that could break bread and eat fish with the disciples. 
And that's our future. Because we're going to have this body that's dying transformed into a very new, very real, very physical, very literal body that will never die. And we often focus on heaven as a beautiful place. Heaven's a place where we'll be with those we love and those who have loved and served Christ. That's true. But we will be with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see that's him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Imagine. This is just partial knowledge, this whole journey of life. The last... 10, 20 years, uh, many couples meet online, right? I had the privilege of officiating at a uh, wedding for my nephew some years ago, someone he met online, and they're very happy together. Relationships like that begin with, like, a bio, uh, a picture, you correspond, email or text or whatever, but then there's a day when you finally meet. That's got to be a pretty significant moment because... You can only write about things so much. Now you have a relationship. We're designed to know Christ, and we know him through words on a page. He speaks to us, verbal words, whatever it is that we say to Christ. From the bottom of our heart, confusing things, struggling things. But it's just, it's just kind of this word thing, and then... Someday, we're going to fully see, fully know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, this relationship. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 says, it's going to change your life if you realize and anticipate that forever relationship with Christ because all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure Paul is looking forward to getting past the limitations of his relationship with Christ you know this this body and these emotions and our sin and all the obstacles and all the junk we go through because I look forward to take hold of that for which he took hold of me Max Lucado wrote, since he could not bear the thought of eternity without us, he chose the nails. And we could add, and rose again. So because he lives, we will live forever. But ultimately, it's his desire to be with us and our desire that's growing to be with him that will be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are We are so ignorant, it seems, of the relationship we will have with you someday that we just—it feels beyond our reach. And so, Lord, I just pray for each one hearing these words that, uh, as we look at your word and see the the longing Paul had to know you, that it would become our longing, that we would uh, embrace the the disciplines, the hard work, the frustrations of 
getting to know you when, when, when life is overwhelming us, when things are going wrong, when it seems you don't fix what is broken in our lives. Help us to see that we are growing a relationship with you daily and so that as we, as we do many things, we will focus on the one thing of knowing you. As we, as we raise our family, as we seek to advance in our career, as we seek to enjoy blessings that you provide, oh God, may you give us a focus in these many things on the one thing of growing our relationship with you because we know someday that will be worth it all. In Jesus' name, amen.